Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Massa Day Dunn, Oliver Cox and Eric Williams. C.L.R. James, the subject of our last episode, was born in Trinidad in January of 1901. In August of that same year, another important Trinidadian intellectual was born and given the impressively historical name Oliver Cromwell Cox. As if the island just couldn't stop churning out significant figures, George Padmore was born not long afterward. Sources differ as to whether this was in 1902 or 1903. We first mentioned Padmore in our episode introducing the 20th century, noting that he was the primary organizing force behind the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, arguably the most important Pan-African conference of them all. He came up again in our episode on Garvey, when we noted that Padmore and his friend James were vocally critical of Garvey during the latter's time in England just before his death. You can expect to hear more about Padmore in episodes to come, particularly those on Richard Wright and Kwame Nkrumah. In this episode, though, we'll be exploring the importance of Oliver Cox and yet another Trinidadian intellectual. Born in 1911, a decade later than Cox and James, Eric Eustace Williams is perhaps best known as the politician who led Trinidad and Tobago at the time of the country's independence from the United Kingdom in 1962. He remained its prime minister until his death in 1981. Williams is also well known as a pioneering historian, whose 1944 book, Capitalism and Slavery, inspired intense debate about the relationship between the two phenomena named in its title. As for Cox, his own most important work appeared in 1948. Caste, Class, and Race, A Study in Social Dynamics was a massive book which likewise dealt centrally with the relationship between capitalism and the oppression of black people. So there's good reason to discuss Cox and Williams together, as theorists who advanced groundbreaking ideas concerning capitalism and race in the 1940s, ideas that remain controversial today. Given their critical focus on capitalism, they are both widely perceived as being Marxist thinkers like James. But as we will see, there are complications in applying that label to them, especially in the case of Williams, who came into conflict with James while leading Trinidad. Our discussion of Williams in this episode will thus also allow us to further develop our picture of James's political thought. In his intellectual biography, The Mind of Oliver C. Cox, Christopher Macaulay states that Cox's Caribbean upbringing is essential to an understanding of the development of his thought. This is a significant claim, and not an obvious one, because Cox lived most of his life in the United States. He was just 18 years old when he arrived in Chicago, and he never moved back to Trinidad, dying in Detroit, where he retired from Wayne State University in 1974. It is significant as well that he landed in Chicago and spent the formative years during which he pursued his higher education in that city, as opposed to somewhere like New York City, where he would have found himself part of a much larger West Indian immigrant community. Yet Cox did not simply leave Trinidad and never look back. After attending a preparatory high school and gaining an associate's degree from a community college, he obtained a Bachelor of Science in Law from Northwestern University in 1928, clearly planning at that point to return to Trinidad as a barrister. 
The next year, though, right at the beginning of the Great Depression, he was stricken with polio and experienced partial paralysis in both of his legs. For the rest of his life, he would need crutches to get around. It was in the face of this disability that he changed his career plans and sought the life of an academic rather than a lawyer. He obtained a master's degree in economics at the University of Chicago, writing a thesis on the availability of workers' compensation that seems to be directly influenced by his perspective as a person with a disability. For his doctorate, he changed fields from economics to sociology. Like E. Franklin Fraser before him, he did his PhD in sociology at the University of Chicago, which was known as the best place at the time for the scientific study of race relations, especially given the prominence of Fraser's mentor, Robert Park. Cox would turn out to have a much more antagonistic point of view on Park and other professors in the department than Fraser did. This difference between the two black sociologists, though real, was greatly exaggerated by Cox, who later wrote of Park and the others as paternalistic white liberals, to whom Fraser remained subserviently faithful. As we know from our portrait of Fraser in episode 89, this accusation that Fraser lacked independence of mind was certainly unfair. But it is worth noting that 1948, the year that Cox published Caste, Class, and Race, was the same year that Fraser became the first black president of the American Sociological Association. It is perhaps understandable that, as Cox sought to overturn the dominant ways of thinking about race in his discipline, he came to perceive Fraser's remarkable success as a sign of having towed the line. What did Cox want to overturn, and why? Here, the key word in the title of his magnum opus is the first one, caste. For Cox, equating race relations in America with a sort of caste system was a fundamental and mystifying mistake, one that served to block any theoretically insightful or practically useful understanding of the nature of racial prejudice against African Americans. He identified the anthropologist W. Lloyd Warner as the leader of what he called the modern caste school of race relations, but he found the analogy rampant in the thought of his time, including in the work of Park and in Gunnar Myrdal's An American Dilemma, the most celebrated sociological treatment of the plight of African Americans of the 1940s. Cox objected to the analogy on a number of grounds, but at bottom, his fundamental concern was to distinguish caste in India as a pre-modern and religious form of social stratification from the racial subordination of African Americans, which he took to be inseparable from the modern European and then American development of capitalist economic relations. Before saying more about the connection he drew between capitalism and racism, it is worth noting another distinction he made between race prejudice and intolerance. In making this distinction, Cox insisted on an important difference between the mistreatment of African Americans and the mistreatment of Jews. On his view, Jews are subject to intolerance because they are a cultural group that refuses to assimilate, while black people are stigmatized on the basis of their physical difference, such that they cannot assimilate even if they want to. American society simply will not allow it. As Cox puts it, the dominant group or ruling class does not like the Jew at all, but it likes the Negro in his place. To put it in still another way, the condition of its liking the Jew is that he cease being a Jew and voluntarily become like the generality of society, while the condition of its liking the Negro is that he cease trying to become like the generality of society and remain contentedly a Negro. 
this conception of anti-Black racism as a matter of keeping Black people in their place flows naturally from Cox's understanding of racism as a result of capitalism. According to him, race prejudice is ultimately an attitudinal justification necessary for an easy exploitation of some race. He therefore summarizes the problem of racism in 1940s America this way, Today, the ruling class in the South effectively controls legislation in the National Congress favorable to the continued exploitation of the Negro masses, mainly by diplomatic bargaining with the politicians of the Northern capitalist exploiters of white labor. The guardians of the racial system in the South control or spend millions of dollars to maintain segregation devices, the most powerful illusory contrivance for keeping poor whites and Negroes antagonized, and spread anti-color propaganda all over the nation and the world. For this expenditure, they expect a return, more or less calculable in dollars and cents. Cox began the work that culminated in this radical book while teaching at Wiley College, a black college in Texas, where he befriended the modernist poet and fellow leftist Melvin B. Tolson, portrayed by Denzel Washington in the film The Great Debaters, which depicts the Wiley College debate team. By the time he finished cast class and race, Cox was working at Tuskegee, a surprising staging ground for such radicalism. Indeed, he was no fan of Tuskegee's founding president, Booker T. Washington. In an article on Washington's leadership, he wrote that Washington was no leader at all, but a controller of the masses who demanded less for the Negro people than that which the ruling class had already conceded. By the time he published that article in 1951, though, Cox had moved to Lincoln University in Missouri, where he would work until 1970. During his time there, he completed a further trilogy of books on his favorite subject, capitalism. In The Foundations of Capitalism, Capitalism and American Leadership, and Capitalism as a System, he elaborated an in-depth history and critical analysis of the system, beginning with what he believed to be its origins in medieval Venice. In these books, he makes clear that, for all his sharp criticism of the ruling class and hope for a socialist future, he's not a Marxist. According to Cox, Marx's emphasis on the role of industrialization in England in the development of capitalism gets the history wrong in ways that are crucially limiting. This provides us with a good opportunity to turn from one rather cocksure historian of capitalism to another. Eric Williams left Trinidad in 1932, to study history at Oxford. His 1939 doctoral thesis, The Economic Aspect of the Abolition of the West Indian Slave Trade and Slavery, was the basis for his book, Capitalism and Slavery, published five years later. 1932 was also the year that C.L.R. James left Trinidad for England. A number of recent scholars have drawn attention to the close mentor-mentee relationship that James and Williams had in the 1930s, a relationship that influenced the completion of both the Black Jacobins and Capitalism and Slavery. James had already taught Williams during his time as a high school student at Queen's Royal College in Trinidad. While living in England, the two regularly spent time with each other, with benefits flowing in both directions. Williams accompanied James on some of his trips to Paris, during which he did research for the Black Jacobins. Incidentally, on a 1933 trip, James met and was helped in his research by none other than Léon Gontran Damas, a soon-to-be founding father of Negritude. James once admitted that, 
there are certain pages in The Black Jacobins where most of the material and all the footnotes are things that Williams gave to me. He claimed also to have provided Williams with a thesis of capitalism and slavery, and indeed, Williams seems to admit as much in his description of the Black Jacobins as a precursor to capitalism and slavery. The two scholars would eventually lose much of the respect they had once had for each other. For example, Eric Williams's 1969 autobiography, Inward Hunger, says nothing about James's influence on his own most famous work, but it is worth bearing in mind that it was the product of what was once a fruitful intellectual relationship. In Capitalism and Slavery, Williams argued that England's involvement in the slave trade and slavery helped to finance the growth of industrial capitalism, and also that the end of slavery in the British Empire came when it ceased to serve capitalist interests. Here is how Williams summed up his thesis. When British capitalism depended on the West Indies, they ignored slavery or defended it. When British capitalism found the West Indian monopoly a nuisance, they destroyed West Indian slavery as the first step in the destruction of the West Indian monopoly. This two-part argument was intended, first of all, as a credible reconstruction of historical fact. Indeed, Williams modestly stated in the preface that the book should not be understood as an essay in ideas or interpretation, but rather as simply an economic study. It's clear, however, that both parts of the argument have important political implications about the nature of imperialism. With his second point, that slavery ended as a result of economic motives, Williams intentionally undermined British self-congratulation for the humanitarian achievement of abolition. Williams sarcastically remarked elsewhere that British historians wrote almost as if Britain had introduced Negro slavery solely for the satisfaction of abolishing it. As for the first point, that English industrial success was linked to slavery, it had a very direct political implication that Williams apparently later mobilized as a politician. Colin Palmer writes that he used the argument that Britain had exploited black labor and despoiled the West Indies to promote its own economic well-being as a weapon to demand more British aid when he became prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago. Fellow black scholars of the time received capitalism and slavery with praise. Another character now familiar to us, the historian Carter G. Woodson, called it the beginning of the scientific study of slavery from the international point of view. Other scholars had more mixed opinions, though, and in the years since its publication, the book's argument has been subject to increasing criticism. Many historians of slavery came to believe that its accounts of slavery's profitability to England and its story of slavery's decline cannot stand up to empirical scrutiny. Still, even one of the book's major critics, Seymour Drescher, conceded its importance in this way. The achievement of capitalism and slavery is that Williams made it impossible for historians ever to return to the posture of splendid moral isolation, which characterized the story of British slave emancipation for more than a century. Leaving now the question of that particular book's legacy, let us return to the story of Williams's career. In 1939, he accepted a position at Howard University, thus moving to America not long after James, who arrived in the country the previous year. While James lived in New York, and Williams in Washington, D.C., they saw each other often, just as when James was in London and Williams in Oxford. In 1942, Williams published his first book, The Negro and the Caribbean. It featured a foreword by Alain Locke, praising Williams as the perfect person to reflect on the past, present, and future of the region, 
and expressing the hope that the book would furnish a closer and sounder bond of understanding between the Negro American and his brother West Indian. Another professional philosopher provided a foreword to Williams's third book, entitled Education in the British West Indies. This time it was John Dewey, who always stands out in the history of philosophy as among the most attuned to the importance of education as a topic. Dewey wrote that, while the creation of a University of the West Indies was the immediate occasion of the book, Williams found himself obliged to go into many of the most important problems that occupy this troubled world. In Dewey's view, Williams rightly saw that the problem of education in the modern world is the problem of making people aware of their privileges and responsibilities as citizens of democracies. As indicated by the writings we've mentioned, Williams was deeply engaged with Caribbean affairs while in the United States. By 1948, he was back in Trinidad. In his autobiography, he explains this choice as follows, I had already made my decision about the future, I would stick to the West Indies. West Indians had traditionally deserted the West Indies. Padmore for Africa, James for the absurdities of world revolution, the majority of West Indians for the traditional medicine and law. Of course, the dismissive reference to James here is conditioned by their later conflict in the 1960s, but this is still a good illustration of the differences separating Williams and James. James's Marxist orientation led him, in Williams's view, toward absurd ideals, whereas he, Williams, was practically committed to making a real difference in the Caribbean. It's noteworthy that capitalism and slavery, for all its apparent economic determinism, contains no mention of Marx either Karl or Groucho. In 1956, Williams founded the People's National Movement, or PNM, the political party that he then led to victory in the election of that year. In the years leading up to this success, he gave a number of public lectures, first at the public library and then out in the open at Woodford Square, a public park in the heart of Port of Spain. He began to refer to this space as the University of Woodford Square, proclaiming that since he had resigned his position at Howard, this would now be the only university at which he would lecture, along with its several branches throughout the length and breadth of Trinidad and Tobago. In other words, he now belonged as an intellectual not to the academy, but to the people and the public spaces of his country. He had returned to become, as he quotes someone as labeling him, the philosopher of West Indian nationalism. Without a doubt, the most memorable and philosophically interesting moment of this rise as a public intellectual and leader was the Massa Dei Dunn speech, which Williams delivered at Woodford Square on March 22, 1961. The purpose of the speech was to explain why he had used that phrase, Massa Dei Dunn, or in standard English, the days of slave masters are over, in a previous speech given in the square. He had originally used it in response to an open letter criticizing him by a white businessman. Members of the opposition, the Democratic Labor Party, or DLP, objected to him uttering such a wicked statement and called on him to apologize. Williams categorically refused to withdraw his statement and doubled down on it in the new speech. Ever the historian, he vividly depicted in his speech the actions, intentions, and ill effects of historical slave owners summing up the Massa as the owner of a West Indian sugar plantation, frequently an absentee, deliberately stunting all the economic potential of the society, dominating his defenseless workers by the threat of punishment or imprisonment, 
using his political power for the most selfish private ends, an uncultured man with an illiberal outlook. He contrasted these evils with the progressive efforts of his party, the PNM, while charging the DLP with seeking to block progress. I accuse the DLP of being the stooge of the masses who still exist in our society. I accuse the DLP of wanting to bring back Massa Day. Of course, the DLP objected to his use of the phrase because it was racially inflammatory. In response, Williams denied that the phrase was anything of the sort. All that they can see in the slogan, Massa Day Done, is racial antagonism. This is characteristically stupid. Massa is not a racial term. Massa is the symbol of a bygone age. Massa Day is a social phenomenon. Massa Day Done connotes a political awakening and a social revolution. Let us now return to the fractious relationship between Williams and C.L.R. James. It was 1958 when James finally came home to Trinidad after he had been deported from the United States and spent more time in the UK, and also in Ghana. Williams invited him to join the PNM, edit its newspaper, The Nation, and become the general secretary for the West Indian Federal Labor Party, with which the PNM was affiliated. An important feature of Williams and James's political work at this time was their dedication to the West Indies Federation, a political union of almost all the British-colonized Caribbean islands that would allow for achieving independence from the UK in a stronger position. Unfortunately, the Federation would fall apart in 1962, after a referendum in Jamaica led to that island seceding from the Federation and achieving independence from the UK on its own. Williams famously commented, one from ten leaves not. This was both a mathematical pun, take away the digit one from the number ten and imagine what's left, and a stark summary of political reality. Jamaica was the biggest island in population and economy. After its withdrawal, Trinidad and Tobago, the second biggest, followed suit so as not to carry the weight of the federation. Thus, Trinidad and Tobago also gained its independence in 1962, and the Federation, despite the hopes and dreams of James and many others, could not be salvaged. By this time, the relationship between Williams and James had already broken down. Probably the briefest possible account of this story is provided by Walton Look Lye in an essay on C.L.R. James and Trinidadian nationalism. It involved disgruntled conservative elements within the party elite. Concerned about James's undue influence, his leftism, and his personal style, and it climaxed with an attempt to embarrass him at the Fourth Party Convention in March 1960 by launching an investigation into the nation and its management. Matters came to a head with an unfavorable report that hinted at mismanagement of funds. The real crisis, however, resulted from Williams's refusal to intervene decisively to project James from this political intrigue. We might thus summarize the political process here as involving a decision by Williams to repudiate James's leftism by allowing the party to push him out. On a more philosophical level, important differences emerge in James's 1962 book, Party Politics in the West Indies. He dedicates the book to the people of Trinidad and Tobago, commending them for having made an imperishable claim to nationhood, and saying that, in all my 30 years of political struggle against imperialism, I know nothing finer. He is referring here to the popular outcry against the army base at Chaguaramas, leased to the United States by the United Kingdom, 
with no input from the Trinidadian people. For years, Williams took on the US and the UK concerning this problem, standing up for Trinidadian sovereignty. Then eventually, he struck a deal allowing the base to remain for over a decade more at least, which James took to be capitulation to imperialist occupation. Perhaps the biggest problem with Williams from James's point of view, however, would be Williams's understanding of his own importance. In a section of the book titled Dr. E.E. E. Williams, James treats Williams as an example of a larger problem concerning personality in Caribbean politics. The problem is the exaltation of a personality over the difficult work of constructing a party through which there can be broad democratic participation. James writes, Williams formed a party, it is true, but his main concern is not the party, but the government. His conceptions of government are essentially that the masses are to be whipped up to give the leaders authority and power. After that, the government will do everything. What is more, his conception of a legislature is essentially that of a lecturer instructing uneducated and rather stupid students. Thus, James takes Williams to have wrongfully made Trinidadian politics revolve around his personality, rather than recognizing that all progress in the West Indies depends upon the mobilization of the population and the building of a party. As we'll see, this issue will continue to arise in mid-century Africana thought, as when Richard Wright is criticized for embracing the rule of autocrats in decolonializing Africa. One more problem that James tackles is worth mentioning in this episode on Trinidadian political thinkers. For all we have said, one might not realize that the problem of race for this particular country has, since the early 19th century, involved not merely the relationship between black people and white colonial rulers, but also the relationship between people of African descent, whose ancestors arrived as slaves, and people of South Asian descent, whose ancestors arrived as indentured servants. The roughly equal numbers of Africans and so-called East Indians in Trinidad and Tobago has made for special political challenges, as it also has in Guyana. The base of the PNM has always been predominantly Afro-Trinidadian, while other parties have captured the majority of the Indo-Trinidadian vote. James treats this racial divide in politics as an especially serious problem, one that the PNM has not shown itself equal to addressing. He encourages an understanding of Caribbean diversity as a consequence of colonial exploitation, yet also an opportunity. It was the colonialist regime which of its very nature was unable to create a nation of the various races which make the West Indies. Independence means a new beginning, the solution of the messes the imperialists are leaving behind. Having started with Oliver Cox's insistence on distinguishing Indian caste relations from race relations as they involve black people in America, it's fascinating that we've ended up with this formulation by James of the problem of black Indian race relations in Cox's homeland. How well did Williams do in confronting the various political challenges laid out by James in this book from the year of independence as time went on? While opinions would no doubt differ, it must be said that he did on a number of occasions exercise his power in rather repressive ways. James left Trinidad for England in 1962, but when visiting as a cricket correspondent in 1965, Williams apparently worried about his presence in relation to a strike by sugar workers and placed him on house arrest. Later, in 1970, he banned another Trinidadian intellectual from entering the country of his birth, 
because of that thinker's association with the Black Power Movement. We will come to the story of that man, Stokely Carmichael, later known as Kwame Ture, in a future episode, at which point we will also tell of how Eric Day Dunn Williams eventually had to confront a major uprising in the name of Black Power, one which was at times strikingly multiracial. In our next episode, though, we will diversify and break the pattern of the last few episodes by turning away from these Trinidadian men with varying degrees of relation to Marxism in order to discuss, well, a Trinidadian woman who was about as committed to Marxism as anyone could be. Join us to learn about the brilliant Claudia Jones next time on the History of Africana Philosophy. (laughs) 